Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like damages, dolls, and the colour pink, or perhaps damages to a pink doll. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which of those do you wish to do next? What do you think? Any of them Uh, tickle your fancy? Dolls. Dolls. Dolls are interesting. Yes, well, any kind of humanoid figure, I think, would be uh, fascinating in seeing how they... um, how they've changed over time, what they represent, why they were made, who had them, um, where the existing collections of them are, um, generally what they can tell us. Very interesting piece of material culture, I think. Um, I, I mean, you could argue my dog has a doll, which is a bit weird, um, uh, but it's more of a badger. But it's... Uh, it's I think more he, of a he, badger. He, <laughs> he thinks... It's a, it's a four-legged animal, that's my point. He thinks, right, that it's a dog, I think. Um, and so it's a dog playing with a small dog, which is like a human playing with a small human. So, so that's sort of like a dog doll. Exactly. Yes, we we've done sort of done dolls in the past. We've well, we've done dolls' houses. So I think actually the inhabitants of those houses would be a very good topic for our mm. next for our next one. I also I think the color pink would be interesting. Okay, we've done a few colors before. Um, yes, let's let's do pink. I'd love it. That'd be excellent. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of fish... Fish does, in fact, have a history. And it's, in fact, all about the fascinating history of cod via Vikings and Mr Birdseye. It's also all about Samuel Pepys, the Royal Society, Sir Isaac Newton, Willoughby and Ray's exceptionally unsuccessful... De Historia Piscium, uh, the history of fishes. It's also about the history of fish and chips, fly fishing and feathers stolen from historic birds. And it's also about <laughs> marlin fishing off the coast of Australia. Who knew? <laughs> or who knew that the history of robots is in fact all about AI and the rise of chat GPT, popular culture, science fiction, and imagining good and bad machines. Think here, C-3PO, R2-D2 and Metal Mickey. It's also about the brazen head, automaton, and the late medieval polymath Roger Bacon via Robert Greene's Elizabethan play, Friar Bacon and Friar Bungie, circa 1590, as well as the Industrial Revolution, Dancing Bears, and Historical Automata. Who knew? Did you hear or did you read that scary thing about 
about AI the other day in The Guardian. And then it got everywhere. It just so happened that I discovered it first in The Guardian. This is a, a military drone that is being tested in the United States. And the colonel who was in charge of these tests uh, basically said that this AI had been programmed to destroy and protect itself. And the way that it did that was to actually uh, kill its operator, who tried to stop it. And then when they programmed it, to reprogrammed it to say, uh, killing your operator is bad, uh, it then tried to take out the entire communication system that the operator was using to try and communicate it <laughs> this wow. this is the future of ai in um we should do ai i think there's so much around ai at the moment it's not really a history um no it is because uh, it definitely has its history you've got um the history of uh, science fiction with people thinking yes, about yes. ai um and you have got i mean i it's it's a fairly recent history but the development of it and development of computers in the 20th century um and um, well, any, anything kind of uh, moving and acting by itself um, de- de- definitely has a history. It would be interesting. It's about the history of plagiarism. Yes, well, because I hear about that as well. Basically, all it is doing is sweeping across the internet, sort of, you know, all this sort of art, you know, ideas, literature, everything that's been put out there. It's sweeping it up and then regurgitating it and, and, mm. and making it up. Quite literally, yeah. um, literally lying. <laughs> Not unlike histories of the unexpected occasionally, James. <laughs> we never lie. We never. We, we deal in facts, Sam Willis. We do in facts. <laughs> um, come on, let me introduce you. I will crack on. Uh, uh, this is a long and complicated one. If history were a coal mine built somehow near or on top of Stonehenge, you do have to bear with uh... me, then this man would be the historical ray of light that on its given moment in the year, the daybell solstice would beam its knowledge and understanding directly through the giant standing stones into the darkness of the mine, which is on top of Stonehenge, bathing those toiling in the darkness in the vitamins of his sunshine. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello. Hello. That's a rather long-winded <laughs> torture. I think I got it. The, my, my, mine, I'm not sure mine's going to work either, but we'll give it a go. You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping. Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a sunshine-related historian, he'd only be the sunshine of your life of history. That's why he's always be around. He is the apple of history. Forever he'll stay in our hearts. Oh, yeah, he is the sunshine of history, baby. That's why he'll always be around. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Apologies mm. there to um, uh, Mr. Wonder uh, for um, butchering his wonderful lyrics. You are the sunshine of my life. Very nice. Uh, what's Mr. Wonder's real name? Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I understand that, but he can't actually be called Stevie Wonder. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Why, why don't you ask, get in touch? You could ask ChatGPT and I see what it says. I believe but... Stevie Wonder is called Stevie Wonder. Guys, today um, we're doing sunshine. I'm sitting here in my shed looking at sunshine, shining beautifully on the garden. We've had a horrible couple of months in the UK. It's been rainy, it's been drizzly, it's been freezing. But now the sun, summer has arrived and we've all been bathing in sunshine for the last few days. And I don't think it's going to stop for some time. So it got us thinking of the many and varied ways that you can think about the history of sunshine. Um, I began, I think my initial idea of this was because I was sitting outside a Cornish pub um, 
over the weekend and the sun was frazzling my knees and I didn't have any cream or anything to cover myself up and I was thinking about uh, Archimedes' death ray, uh, which was a weapon he um, supposedly invented for the siege of Syracuse about 400 or so BC. Um, And it's an interesting story. Uh, whether or not it's true, we don't know. But apparently he kind of got lots of mirrors and directed and, and focused the beams of the sun and managed to set fire to some um, to some ships, some Carthaginian ships who were attacking Sicily at the time. What I really like about this story is that um, it's a window into the history of experimental archaeology. Now, it's such a wonderful a wonderful story. We don't know very much about it until um, kind of the Byzantine period, until about 500 um, uh, CE, so 900 years or so after it supposedly happened. Um, But throughout history, a lot of people have done their best to test it because it's such a fantastic idea. I remember watching it, we're sitting down with my son watching Mythbusters, that wonderful TV show, um, which is actually in its 20th year now and it's all feeling a little bit dated. But um, if you look into it, uh, it, what's really great about it is that there have been people throughout history who've had a go at trying to understand what's going on. Um, René Descartes was one, um, which was, I thought, pretty impressive. And then uh, the way to find out about this is actually was... Uh, through a um, scientist working at the University of Edinburgh in the 19th century, a guy called John Scott, and he wrote in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Edinburgh um, talking about it. And there's this little bit here which tells you occasionally how you get into other people studying what you're studying in the past. It's about historiography, really. Uh, At a later period, mirrors similar to that of Archimedes appear to have engaged the attention of Baron Napier of Merchiston and other mathematicians. But strange enough, the famous naturalist Buffon was the first to establish the practicability and therefore the probability of the achievement. He employed a combination of plain reflectors consisting of ordinary looking glasses, eight inches by six, attached to a single frame. With 40 of these glasses, he set on fire tarred beach at a distance of 66 feet. A plank smeared with tar and brimstone was ignited at 126 feet by 98 uh, glasses. A combination of 128 glasses with a clear sun inflamed very suddenly a plank of tarred fur at 150 feet. In addition to these experiments made in Paris about the beginning of April, others were made in summer by which wood by which wood was kindled at 200 and 210 feet and silver and other metals were melted at distances varying from 25 to 40 feet. Um, so fascinating, a little window into the historiography of understanding Archimedes' death ray. Um, his mention of Buffon is interesting. He's a fascinating post person, 18th century, a French nationalist, naturalist, mathematician, cosmologist, very famously uh, a director of the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. Um, the plant garden. I, I th- yeah, the plant garden. <laughs> Out of all of these, I also thought it was interesting that Descartes uh, was involved in this. Um, so we're think- talking about the 17th century here. Now, he's interesting because he also studied optics and he was very influential in the development of the thinking and of the career of Isaac Newton. And Descartes did another really interesting thing with the sun. He worked out how rainbows worked, which I think was really interesting. Um, I'm not sure we've done the history of rainbows, James, but we certainly should do. Um, Descartes worked out that they... 
why rainbows were where they were. He worked out that the angular radius of a rainbow was 42 degrees. And he then inspired Isaac Newton to try and work out how um, and why when sunshine hits a water droplet, it does the crazy stuff that it does. Um, so basically understanding that different colours of light have different refractive indices. So there you are, James, a bit of a ramble um, from the Carthaginians in 400 BC um, via some 17th century French philosophers back to Isaac Newton, a 19th century Scottish uh, a scientist and it shows that there is one history of sunshine that is actually all to do with understanding the uh, power of the sun and the way that the sun uh, reacts when it hits water droplets in the air and also uh, how philosophers in influenced other each other's writing wonderful stuff it's almost poetic sam <laughs> <laughs> very ne very nearly poetic uh, we have done rainbows would you believe? Uh, I've just Googled it up uh, on our, our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, uh, forward slash podcast, forward slash rainbows, uh, on the 11th of May 2020, which was a Monday. Mm, uh, and a very fine episode it was. I, I can't remember anything episode, about it. I, I remember. probably spoke about Newton and Descartes. <laughs> no, no, we spoke about Elizabeth I and the rainbow portrait and oh, yeah. various other various other things like that. Well, where did where was I going to start with uh, with sunshine? I mean, I was in a very similar sort of um, state to you this weekend, out and about, when I got a text saying we should do sunshine oh, from me. Yes, <laughs> from you. Obviously, I little did I know that your knees were burning uh, at that point, but it got me off, uh, sort of thinking about things. Um, the first thing I did was to sort of Google the sun uh, and work out sort of you know, I mean, not obviously not Google the sun, but I started thinking about you know, the sun and knowledge of the sun and facts about the sun and discovery of the sun. And that sort of, you could do that whole sort of scientific sort of route into it um, from the sort of the ancient world through the medieval, you know, picking up on some of the stuff that you're, that you're doing, the sort of enlightenment, scientific discovery uh, side of things. Uh, some interesting facts about it. It's, the sun is enormous. Um, uh, it's, it's circumference, get this, is uh, over four million kilometres. Uh, a radius, um, uh, it's, it's huge, it's 695,000 kilometres, a temperature that goes up to 15 million degrees C. Um, average time taken to rotate on an axis is 27 Earth days. So basically, it's it's huge, it's and it's hot. Those are my, my, my things about my it. However, I didn't want to go down that route. What I wanted to do was I wanted to talk about sun worship. And I wanted to talk about sun worship in two different ways. One is a, a literal sun worship, which I'll come back to. Uh, which is the worship of the sun as a as a, a deity. Um, so we'll I'll talk about in a little bit about the the uh, ancient Egyptians um, uh, worship of the sun. Uh, but I wanted to talk about it in a more sort of figurative way. Sun worship being sunbathing, uh, and I wanted to talk about the cultural history of the suntan. Um, and it seems that. The argument that I'm going to make following some very interesting uh, research on uh, magazines in the 1920s, I want to argue that the suntan was in fact invented um, in 
Uh, well, let me see here. I think it was invented in 1928. Uh, 1928 and 1929. Uh, that's the, the point that I'm going to argue. There are some... Um, and I've been reading uh, a an article in the American Journal of Public Health published in 2009. Um, uh, and it's entitled Changes in Skin Tanning Attitudes, Fashion Articles and Advertisements in the Early 20th Century. I'll come back to that in a minute. And I just want to sort of pop that in in some kind of context. And I'm talking here very much about about the the West and about particularly about white Westerners. And throughout much of history in the West, um, light skin has been seen as fashionable and preferable. Um, so much so that in Elizabethan England, um, people would whiten their skin. And I think in, in the past, we've talked about arsenic um, being used in beauty products to whiten uh, women's skin and give them that sort of, uh, you know, very pale pallor. If you think about that very famous painting of Claude Monet, um, do you know the one that I mean? This is the one, um, La Promenade, uh, in 1875, yeah. Claude Monet's. This is the, the woman in the field um, and she's holding up a parasol. I mean, basically what this shows is that in the West at this time, it was fashionable for women to have parasols, long sleeves, hats, whatever, to keep the sun off them and keep um, their skin pale. I was giving, I was walking, uh, walking yesterday evening uh, with the dog and my wife, chatting to her about this. And she said, well, have you, you remember in Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie, and when they're travelling across the prairie... The kids are told to keep their hats on, uh, otherwise they'll look like the Indians. Uh, in mm. other words, the Native Americans. So there is this sort of there is this sort of history of skin color and uh, and racial attitudes. Um, very broadly, if you're thinking about it in terms of class, um, throughout much of history, um, the elites would be inside and pale. Whereas the working classes, the peasants, the, the sort of agricultural labourers would be outside and would have uh, a suntan from their manual labour. So it is a marker of refinement and gentility. But something happens in the 1920s, I think. Um, apocryphally, it, it's connected to Coco Chanel, the sort of it girl, who in 1923 wanders off a, a yacht in Cannes, that beautiful uh, town on the south coast of France. And she wanders off this yacht with a wonderful uh, suntan. And I think in fashion terms, this sort of flips the dial. And what you have is a contrast to the very sort of pale-skinned um, aesthetic of beauty to actually something that is quite rebellious. This Parisian designer comes off and has this sort of beautiful suntanned look. And I think this gets picked up not only in fashion of the time when fashion becomes sort of much more... Um, clean cut, you know, there are sort of, we've got the sort of, um, you know, more skin being exposed. Um, but also we can see in the fashion industry, the way in which fashion is being advertised, you're having the suntan 
promoted in distinct ways. And this brings us back to the article uh, that I was talking about. Um, this changes in skin tanning attitudes, fashion articles and advertisements in the early 20th century. And what they do, it's a very quantitative approach. They look at two article, two magazines, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, for the years 1920, 1927, 1928 and 1929. And what they're looking at is they're looking for articles or advertisements for products that promote skin bleaching and protection or skin tanning. And the conclusion that they come up to, up with, is that articles and advertisements promoting, and I'm quoting here from their abstract, promoting the fashionable aspects of tanned skin were more numerous in 1928 and 29 than in 1927 and 1920. Whereas those promoting pale skin, either by protection or bleaching, were less numerous. And what they argue is that this, in fact, denotes a clear shift in attitudes towards tan skin during this period. In other words, what you have is two flagship beauty magazines in the early 1920s that are suddenly promoting tanned skin. And you can see this in a series of graphs. If you go to the, the article, they are um, looking at the number of articles advocating skin tanning in May, June and July issues of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar for the years 1920, 27, 28 and 29. There are only two articles uh, in Vogue in 1920, one article in 1927, um, contrasted with 10 articles in Vogue in 20, 1928 and 13 uh, articles in 1929. So you can and you can see this, you know, replicated in advertisements for um, promoting tanned appearance. Um, none in 1920, one in 1927 and 10 or 11 in 1928 and a terrific sort of over 50 in 1928, in, in 1929, in, in Vogue. So there we are. Uh, the history of uh, sunshine is, in fact, all about the discovery of the suntan in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar in 1928. Amazing stuff. It would be fascinating to see what else they were advertising. We should look into that. Um, I'm going to just talk very briefly about the way that the sun helps us. So we started off talking about the pain in my knees when I was sitting outside that Cornish pub, which got me thinking about Archimedes' death ray, um, but also the benefits of sunshine. Lots of different ways you can look at this. Um, I actually started off by um, turning to Florence Nightingale's notes on nursing, because she actually, um, uh, this famous Florence Nightingale, she... Uh, became a well known for trying to change and also changing nursing practices uh, during the Crimean War. And she wrote a wonderful book called Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not, which I think was a really, really good, um, uh, good title. And I think that should be used a bit more. Anyway, she was a, um, uh, a, a strong, vociferous supporter of giving the patients um, access to sunlight. Um, this little quote here explains it. It's the unqualified result of all my experience with the sick that, second only to their need of fresh air, is their need of light. That, after a close room which hurts the most, is a dark room. And that it is not only light but direct sunlight they want. 
I had rather have the power of carrying my patient about after the sun, according to the aspect of the rooms, if circumstances permit, than let him linger in a room when the sun is off. People think the effect is upon the spirits only. This is by no means the case. The sun is not only a painter, but a sculptor. You admit that he does the photograph. Without going into any scientific exposition, we must admit that light has quite as real and tangible effects upon the human body. But this is not all. Who has not observed the purifying effect of light, and especially of experience? Go into a room where the shutters are always shut. In a sick room or a bedroom, there should never be shutters shut. And though the room be uninhabited, though the air had never been polluted by the breathing of human beings, you will observe a close, musty spell of corrupt air, of air unpurified by the effect of the sun's rays. The mustiness of dark rooms and corners indeed is proverbial. The cheerfulness of a room, the usefulness of light in treating disease is all important. It's a fantastic little paragraph because not only does it tell us that Florence Nightingale was appreciating and understanding in her own way the effects of sunshine, but it also demonstrates the limits of our understanding of sunshine's impact on the body in um, the mid-19th century. Now, that's just one place you can start talking about the beneficial effects of the sun. Um, you can follow it through to um, the history of rickets, which is fascinating. So this is a disease caused by the absence of sun. It's to do with um, the development of cities in the 19th century, particularly you can explore it in terms of scientists starting to understand how pollution, narrow alley, think narrow alleyways in big new cities, think smog, and um, all to do with uh, the Industrial Revolution. And it was depriving kids, primarily, of the vitamin D they needed to grow healthily. And that was that meant that there was a, a huge problem with rickets. Uh, and it was, um, wasn't just in the UK. Um, particular studies as well have shown that in 1900, more than 80% of children in Boston were reported to suffer from rickets. Pretty much everyone was getting it in these cities. Um, a real kind of a new type of plague, a real fear to do with what industrialisation was bringing. Anyway, it had one specific impact which um, has only really started to be understood, and that was the um, impact on pregnant women. At the time, it didn't have so much focus because in the 19th century, people were primarily interested in contagious diseases or something to do with, with sanitation of the poor. So they were about cholera primarily and other kind of contagious diseases. Ricketts wasn't contagious. They knew that and it didn't get their focus. But what they started to realise, at least obstetricians did, is that women who had rickets as a child would end up with a seriously compacted pelvis and that had a, uh, a a huge impact when they actually came to give birth and in these cases the obstetricians had three options they could either stand by and, and the mother and the child would die they could save the mother but that would involve destroying the fetus or they could perform a cesarean um, but at the time, that was uh, often tantamount to a death sentence. So it meant that obstetricians at the time were confronted with a with a new and um, well, not necessarily new, but a much more prevalent uh, dilemma. And that was um, whose life should they save? Should they save the mother, or should they save the child's life? 
Um, it was particularly interesting that this has an international aspect to it. So it turns out being more of a problem in Britain than it is in France. And it has been argued that this was to do with the fact that Britain was primarily a Protestant nation and that France being Catholic, it was different um, because there was more of a willingness to carry out risky caesareans, which is because, uh, again, this has been argued, that the life of the mother was seen as less important because she was already baptised, unlike the baby. Um now, the British medical practitioners had a thing or two to say about this. At the time, they thought this understanding was bigoted. They thought it was superstitious. Um, and then that leads into a long-standing hostility towards the French at the time. So you can see here how um, there's one history of sunshine, which is actually all to do with treating soldiers uh, in the Crimean War in the 19th century and also... Um, those who are pregnant um, during the Industrial Revolution and who had suffered from rickets as children. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, you're relishing those connections, Sam. Those links, incredible, incredible. Now, I finally want to talk to talk about a different kind of historical worship um, of the sun. Uh, we've talked about sun tanning and people sort of prostrating themselves on the ground to sort of get the uh, beneficial uh, effects of those sun rays. Uh, and I want to talk here about actual worship of the sun as a god. And throughout history, and particularly in ancient history, um, solar deities were incredibly important to many of the world's religions and many of the myths uh, associated with them. So a lot of civilizations worshipped the sun, back to the ancient Egyptians, the Incas and Aztecs in Mexico and South America. Um, we can also see it in things like Stonehenge, which is all about the, the summer and winter solstice, which is the movement of the of the sun and those pagan uh, festivals, um, which still uh, go to this very day. Um, the ancient Sumerians, uh, for example, uh, believed um, 
that the sun was Utu, uh, the god of justice. And in ancient Egypt, uh, the fourth dynasty worshipped the sun god uh, Ra, uh, and he was portrayed by a falcon-headed divinity, um, and above his head was a solar disk. Uh, I'm acting this out on. Uh, I'm I'm acting this out with a, a disc above my head. So he's a falcon-headed divinity uh, with a solar disc uh, above his head. Uh, he later uh, is identified with a dung beetle. The sort of you know dung beetle sort of crawl, crawl up into those sort of spherical balls, uh, which can be sort of identified with the sun. Um, there are. How did all that happen? How does a dung beetle get associated with the sun? No idea. <laughs> I, I think it's the sort of scarab beetle. You know, it's that sort of shape, and you see it, you see it everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm just wondering what that link was. Interesting. An everyday occurrence, I imagine. Um, he's also portrayed in as being carried uh, across the sky in a what is what is known as a solar bark. In other words, a, a ship uh, sort of vessel, um, and. It's also connected to many of the uh, foundation creation myths uh, of um, of Egyptian society, um, and this is uh, the origin story of how Ra basically created everything. Um, and do you know much about your Egyptian creation myths? No. Um, no, let me give you a sort of very potted history. And this is from this is gutted from an article uh, by somebody from the American University of Cairo, uh, Faiza Heikel, um, who has a very lovely little article uh, about this. Um, basically, if you imagine there being absolutely nothing. There's a sort of primeval sort of ocean of nothingness and only darkness. Um, and this is the sort of base matter out of which life would come. Um, and then there is a, a, an entity called Atom. Uh, and he, it, it, I suppose, breathed life uh, into this primeval ocean. Uh, and this meant that it was time for creation to begin. And what happens is out of the water, uh, uh, an island emerges to support this this divinity, which manifested itself in the form of Ra, the sun god of Egypt. Uh, so we have then this this sort of island emerging and a primeval hill, and Ra, the sun god of Egypt, sets out to create himself for of himself um, the first gods. So there is um, Shu, uh, the god of air and dryness, and his partner, partner uh, Tefnut, uh, the god of humidity, uh, and they would lead to other gods to create the cosmos. So Nut, the sky goddess, Geb, the earth god, and in turn they created the, the principles of life. Osiris, the perfect being, uh, who ruled over the world, which left Ra busily creating and naming other other elements, and so that so the story so the story goes on, and you have uh, various sort of backs and forwards. Ra rules the world sort of half the time, half the time he's sort of elsewhere fighting things. So you have the sort of you have the sort of day and night. Um, but what's interesting about this is that is that he is literally worshipped by people. So his imagery ends up absolutely everywhere and it becomes entwined with royal ideology. So you see these images all over 
temples, chapels, um, priests to actually serve his cult. Uh, it's all over the tombs in the Valley of the Kings in Western Thebes, for example. And one of the most vivid survivals is on the tomb of Nefertiti, who was the wife of the great pharaoh uh, Ramesses II. Uh, and we, this was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Queens by the director of the Egyptian Museum in Turin, Ernesto Schiaparelli, uh, in 1904. And it is an amazing tomb. I did a virtual tour of it uh, yesterday, and it is absolutely stunning. Uh, one of the problems was before they actually got to explore it uh, completely uh, it had been raided uh, much of it had been looted much of it had gone but it is still stunningly intact and you can navigate your way around it uh, and the, the 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 sort of frieze that I'm really interested in is a frieze that depicts the sun god as a, a sort of seated uh, falcon-headed being uh, carrying a, a staff and a cross, and over its head is that sort of um, is that sort of solar disc. So there we have it, Sam. Um, sunshine is all about god worship in ancient Egypt and the tomb of Nefertiti. Mm. Valley of the Queens, very good. Valley of the Queens, I'd like to find more about. I've seen the bust of Nefertiti in Berlin, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, guys, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our little history of sunshine. We'll be back with more. Um, not sure what's coming up. Maybe the history of pink. We should do that. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis online. Please do so. And you can follow me at James Daybell on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. Um, and Facebook. We also have a webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com, and a Patreon page, should you wish to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past. But meanwhile, thank you for listening. We should be back with dolls, I think. Oh, dolls, dolls and that's pink. what we're going to do. Let's do that. Dolls, dolls and, and pink. pink. Yeah, great stuff. All right, fabulous. See you soon, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.